For episode 110 of the Golf Rules Questions podcast, we have a real treat. Mr. Tim Murphy, all the way from little old United States of America, joins Stuart Knott podcast McPhee to chat about his journey with the rules of golf. Where it all started, how he became an expert, the brilliant mentors he has had along the way, and the great community of people that keep him entertained and educated on a daily basis. Tim also has a couple of rules he would like to see updated, or at least Give us some help with the clarification. And of course, as the guest, Tim has brought his own GRQ OTW. So listen all the way to hear that doozy. But just before we get into that episode, I want to encourage you that if you like these podcasts, please share it with a friend or two. Send them a link and get them listening. As well as the podcast, Stuart and Blakey also produce The Drop Zone, which is a weekly rules newsletter that gives you some helpful hints, a few rules questions, and there is usually a funny video to keep you entertained and educated. So send us your email address if you have yet to sign up. And when you receive the newsletter, make sure to forward that on to your captain or manager at your club. They are free to distribute it to all of their club members. We also have merchandise that you can purchase so that you are representing the best golf rules podcast in the world. Grab a t-shirt, a hat, or even a hoodie featuring the rules rue or the wombat caddy. And now, whether you're in your car or going for a walk or just taking a break after mowing your lawn, enjoy this episode of the Golf Rules Questions podcast. Stuart's one of our highest ranked working rules officials that we have, one of the best we've got. And he knows he's such. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 110 110 of the Golf Rules Questions podcast. My name is Stuart McPhee. Others try to force other names onto me, but I like Stuart, so we can go with Stuart today. Um, I'm on my own today. Uh, Blakey has not joined me today, but what I'm going to do is have a great interview with a very, very experienced person in the rules of golf and also golf in general, and I'm looking forward to very much having that chat with him. I'm joined today by a gentleman whose name is Tim Murphy. Tim, welcome to the Golf Rules Questions podcast. It is great to have you with us. Uh, thanks, Stuart. And I'm, I may have a tendency to call you podcast uh, <laughs> based on historical info, but I'll just stick with Stuart. You know, Blakey, Blakey will be thrilled to hear that when he does hear the introduction to this episode. So it's great to have your company. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you also to everybody around the world who I know listens into this podcast and also watches it on YouTube. Tim, we will get to the golf rules question of the week from last week's episode, before, which I'll read out in just a moment. But before we do that, you have an extraordinary amount of experience in the game of golf, starting at a very young age uh, through to now, both playing and caddying and obviously um, running tournaments and as a rules official. Would you mind just sharing with us a little bit about your experience, please? Uh, yeah, I, 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 in short, I'm just a, a golf nut. Uh, Stuart. Um, I was introduced to the game at a very young age uh, by my father at age 10 and I was fortunate enough in our little hometown of La Crosse, Wisconsin we had a, a, a club that allowed access to junior players uh, six days a week where we could one day we had to play with the parent but those other five days we could go out as kids and, and play and that's what we did. And we didn't have a practice range so we, we, we many days played 36 holes. Uh, I started caddying at the age 10. The rates at that time were $2.75 for a single, and if we were lucky enough to get a double, we got three seventy-five. dollars And uh, uh, you add a quarter tip to that, and you, 
it, it took it took a lot of a lot of uh, bags to, uh, to to bank some money at the end of the day. Uh, I grew up playing the game, um, played it a lot, loved it, and as I got into my working career, obviously the playing became much much less. Uh, moved around quite a bit, so I got to see a lot of different golf courses uh, in my home state of Wisconsin, but as well as uh, Georgia, North Carolina, uh, South Carolina, and, and, and Florida. I uh, was able to teach my uh, son the game. He became an accomplished player, a collegiate player. He, he played in the uh, USAM with uh, uh, the first two days with Ricky Fowler when Ricky was a, uh, a senior in high school. So that, that's always a fun moment. Uh, I, I never was a great player, but I, I had moments of brilliance, and I qualified for the U.S. Uh, Mid-Am one year, and then, and then after I retired, I qualified for the U.S. Senior Am. My claim to fame in both of those, I did not make match play in either one of those events, but, but at least I qualified, and I was the oldest uh, qualifier uh, participant in the qualifying round, so I felt uh, taking on the Young Bucks in both of those cases was, uh, <laughs> was a lot of fun. Uh, um, I retired from John Deere in 2019, and that's when I really uh, started devoting more of my time to uh, rules officiating versus versus playing. I got introduced uh, earlier on uh, when I had a good stint back in Wisconsin for about 13 years and and was very much involved with the Wisconsin State Golf Association and and really uh, cut my started to cut my teeth in, in rules there. And then now with the uh, with the North Carolina or excuse me with the Carolinas Golf Association, which is based in, in Pinehurst, but they have responsibility for both North and South Carolina. Uh, two really great organizations, uh, very, very, very professionally run, and uh, I'm fortunate to be involved with, uh, with both of those. I've, uh, 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 I'm going to pass on the game to my grandkids. I have my, my three grandsons, all under the age of nine. They, I've, I've purchased some of their clubs. My granddaughter turns five in, in, uh, in uh, next year, and she'll get her set of clubs in, and uh, we'll just see. That's <laughs> I hope, hopefully yeah. my granddaughter does a better my, my daughter had a fun, great swing she had a better swing than my son and uh, he never took up the game so maybe i'll have better luck with my granddaughter well thank you tim that's uh, great thank you very much for sharing uh that story about your you know incredible um journey in golf and doing all those different things and now still of course playing a very very active role still well as with our episodes of the golf rules questions podcast we always have our golf rules question of the week and tim i've asked you to respond to last week's uh, question and I'll just read it out for everybody. Danny the D Grey golfer hits her tee shot way left into thick bushes on a 14th hole at Wombat Hills. After one minute of searching, she finds and identifies her ball and decides to take unplayable ball relief. Unable to retrieve her original ball, she drops another ball correctly in the lateral relief area. As she is working through her yardage book and waiting for others to play, a child crawls under the bush and retrieves her ball. The child asks the caddy if he can keep the ball when the caddy realises it's not Danny the Dugrade's golfer ball, golfer's ball at all. The caddy advises Danny and they continue searching for her ball, finding it about one minute later. However, unfortunately, five minutes have now passed since she began searching originally for that ball. She picks up the drop ball and continues play with the original ball, holding out in five more strokes. She tees off on her next hole. What is her hole score for the 14th hole, Tim? 
Well, that's a, that's a, that's a good one, and this is going to be a great example of where the rules can be your friend and <laughs> not necessarily always uh, your detriment. Um, Danny has dropped under an inapplicable rule in taking relief under 19.2c because when you take unplayable ball relief, either laterally or back on the line, you must know the position of the ball. The only relief she could have taken for unplayable would have been 19.2a, which is stroke and distance. So she did not know where her ball was and took a drop, and um, that's going to be a problem. But she's not yet played that ball. So rule 14.5a is going to be her uh, saving grace in that she's allowed to correct that mistake. Once that other ball was found, she's got that ball on the ground. Now she's got two balls. Uh, she would act appropriately in, in picking up that ball that she dropped. Uh, continuing with good fortune of rules, she originally searched for one minute. And in the definition of lost, uh, I'm quoting here, if the search begins and is then temporarily interrupted for a good reason, like when the player has mistakenly identified a wrong ball, the time between the interruption and when the search resumes does not count. So all that time that accumulated up to five minutes does not count. So the only time that counts is the one minute before and the one minute after, that's under the three minutes, so that original ball is now in play. So she's had the one stroke, she's had the additional five strokes, she's had no penalty strokes, so her score for the hole is going to be six. And then fortunately for her, or for the, for the young child that found the ball, uh, uh, Danny uh, signed her glove and, and gave it to her, and everybody was happy at Wombat yeah, Hills. Yeah. <laughs> Very happy place at Wombat Hills. You know, it's interesting you talk about the rules being your friend. Like, you know, I deliberately wrote that question saying she, she identified her ball, and you feel like, but she hasn't. There should be some penalty. She's done something wrong. Imagine a referee there saying, before you take unplayable, can you just make sure, can you just confirm for me that's your ball? And the player goes, yeah, yeah, that's, that's my ball. And she's done that, and she's done that incorrectly. Um, you feel like, yeah, she's, your rules are a friend. I mean, obviously, you, your answer is correct. And it's just like, wow, she's getting away with something there. And I obviously threw in the five minutes hoping that would lend people to think, oh, I think she's in trouble now. And, and then, of course, I added at the end, she tees off on the next hole, which, of course, brings in to people's minds, oh, she hit a wrong ball, you know, it's a disqualification on the table which is why I put that into the question. But you're right, that 14.5, you know, what's that general principle that you are stuck with what you got right, but she didn't get a lot right. <laughs> so, so she wasn't really stuck, was she? No, no, she, she was fortunate. <laughs> very, very fortunate. Terrific. Thanks, Tim. Well, you know, back to your introduction, and you talked about starting in the game at a very young age, earning a very small tip, which I assume at the time was fantastic, <laughs> the quarter tip. Um, you mentioned it a little bit in your introduction. I'd like to just delve a little bit more into this. You know, you started playing at a very young age. You're clearly an elite golfer without being professional. In the amateur game, you can obviously play very, very well at a very high level. You've played a lot of golf. Was it in the early days, the rules were just secondary? They were just an inconvenience at times or just something you weren't that interested in because you knew enough? to get by? I mean, what sparked that initial interest in the rules when you were playing as often as you were? Well, I think the answer to the first question is, is pretty much going to be the same for any any amateur that plays a lot of golf. And it, 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 is that you, you know the fundamentals, you know how to take a drop, 
with the exception of back on the line. I've seen some very elite amateur players not understand what that is. But you know how to take a drop out of a penalty area. You know about stroke and distance. You know about moving your ball. I mean, and, and everybody plays the game. But when you get into uh, competitive golf and, uh, and situations that are out of the norm, you're lost. So when I moved back to Wisconsin in, in 2000, and, um, in 2000 um, I was asked to be a director of the Wisconsin State Golf Association. In the states, the state golf associations are affiliates of the USGA. They run the tournaments for the, for the USGA uh, in their respective areas. The, the qualifiers uh, go to the national events. And it was expected that uh, as a director that you volunteer a certain number of hours uh, at the tournaments. And if you were certified, then you served as a rules official. Well, I really wasn't too interested in directing traffic or in, in <laughs> selling shirts. I wanted to be a, a rules official. So mm -hmm. I, I, I set out the path and said, how does this happen? So I was really fortunate to have three people who served on, uh, who served uh, as directors as well, who are, are mammoths in the name of rules, in my opinion. One was Jim Reinhardt, who was former executive committee member of uh, Wisconsin State Golf Association and former rules chair for the USGA. And he currently uh, sits on the rules committee for the Masters at, at Augusta. So he's, he's still very much involved in that role. And he was instrumental in bringing the US AM and the US Open to Aaron Hills. So he, that's, that's how much of a, a power player he was in that arena. Another guy was uh, Mark Reinemann, who was also on the executive committee and uh, of the WSGA. He was former executive committee of the USGA and was chair of the rules committee in 2019 when the new rules took effect. So he was the main liaison with the USGA and the RNA in bringing those uh, quite major rules changes in 2019. Uh, he now lives in Pinehurst. Uh, sadly, he just lost his wife, Wendy, who was, who was also a very, uh, very much engaged in, in, in the, with the US Mid-Am for the women. She was very much involved with the uh, Women's uh, Open when it was held at Pine Needles and just a really, really, really nice lady. And then the third guy was John Morissette. John was the former uh, director of rules for the USGA, and he's the smartest rules guy that I know of. He's just, he, he, he makes, he knows everything, but he makes it, makes it very simple when he communicates rules uh, and why and when. And uh, he's worked every major around the world. Um, and he joined Aaron Hills prior to the USAM uh, I think Jim Reinhardt was instrumental in bringing him over, and uh, um, and, he, and he became director of competition and still holds that role up at up at Aaron Hills. I think they're going to host the uh, I think they're going to host a U.S. Mid-Am coming up, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, um, just three really good guys. That uh, it was through these guys that I really started exploding my interest in in, in learning about the rules. Okay, when uh, we were sort of chatting back and forth before you know in the last week leading up to this you have obviously played thousands of rounds of golf but you said there was one that stands out as your favorite can you tell us a little bit about that please well i am going to scotland uh, next summer and i'm taking my son and my son-in-law so that this my favorite round so far might be replaced with the with our round at st andrews but we'll see <laughs> um yeah i i uh, i mentioned aaron hills it's my all-time uh, favorite golf course and when I was um, 
moving from uh, Wisconsin down to Florida. John Deere offered me a move down, and I had to leave the WSGA. I made my uh, uh, resignation uh, public, and John Morissette called me up, and he said, Tim, come on down. Let's play one more round at Aaron Hills, and I'll get the tee time. And we, we got a tee time at 7.30 in the morning on a glorious June day, just not a cloud to sky, just the two of us with caddies. And um, with my interest in rules, obviously I had all kinds of questions of John, and we spent three and a half hours just talking about he, me asking questions about all the different majors that he was a rules official in, where he had problems with players, where were difficult situations, who were the nice guys, who were not the nice nice guys, and it was just uh, it was like opening up a, 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 a an entertaining movie for me. I just thoroughly enjoyed that. I very much appreciated the gesture that that John offered me, and the experience was uh, over the top. So I, I cherish that round and wish I could do it again. So. Mm. <clears throat> Is there anything from that round and that conversation you had that still sticks with you today that you'd be willing to share, just whether it be a story or a principle in the rules or the way you go about refereeing a particular situation? Is there anything that sticks with you from that conversation or that round of golf? Yeah, not so much uh, about particular rules or rule situations because that, that was early on in my rules journey and I was still a, pretty much a novice. But, but I was more interested in, uh, in difficult situations. Like, and, and, and he described, and I'll, 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 I'm, I'm not going to throw a, a player under the bus, but he told me about some players that were, were, were really, really uh, nasty folks. And you know, I, you don't see that on TV, right? You just, mm -hmm. you just see. There was one comical uh, comment that he made about Ernie Els, and uh, you know, Ernie Els is, is known as uh, uh, the Big Easy, and uh, he, he made a comment about the fact that Ernie's big, but he isn't necessarily always easy, and so, <laughs> so, so, so apparently he. Uh, Ernie's got a, a, a pretty uh, tough demeanor when it when he has interactions with uh, rules officials. Not not in a mean sort of way, but just he's just uh, you want to make sure he gets it his way. And if you recall the incident in the Masters, I think it was Ernie Els when he wanted uh, uh, at one time he hit way left on hole number eleven. This is several years ago, and there was material there that was piled, and it was clear that it was not piled for removal. Right. But he asked an official, and he got that answer, and he didn't like it. He wanted another official, and he got an answer, and he didn't like it. And he asked another official, and he finally got the answer that he wanted. And one of the fellows said, yep, it's it's uh, piled there for removal, and he got relief. Wow. So the persistence paid off. Yeah. Uh, just kept asking the next person, the next person, the next person. Isn't that interesting, I think, when we begin our rules journey and we pick up, you know, the book or whatever version we have at the time, and we start reading through chapters and we're learning things, we probably don't appreciate at that time that if we ever apply this for real with real people and real players, it's not going to be easy all the time. You just don't walk yeah. into a situation and go, yeah, you can take a drop, just pick your reference point, blah, blah, blah. You can have those, maybe altercation is not the right word, but they certainly can be tense moments with a player who is not clearly not happy with their current predicament. We don't read about that in the in the uh, Rules of Golf book, do we? No, no, they don't. And we're sort of not no, prepared for them. No. <clears throat> you um, also, when we were in preparation for this, we were talking about your journey of playing a lot of golf at a high level, and then for whatever path you took with the associations and the like, 
then we had to begin this journey of actually taking the rules a bit more seriously, a bit more study. We need to now become qualified, accredited and the like. You told me about an exam you didn't study for because you were playing regularly and you knew enough to get by out on the course. Um, but the exam result just maybe humbled you a little bit. Are you able to share with us the lead up to yeah. that exam, please? <laughs> yeah, it was actually the very first uh, USGA PGA three-day rule seminar and, and that I ever went to. It was out in New Mexico, and, and Jim Reinhardt actually was one of the instructors. And it's followed by the 100-question exam. And I was cocky. I mean, I it's not that... You no, know, I read the book. It's not that I didn't read it. I read the rules. I went through the three days of presentation. I paid attention. It was all interesting. Um, but my attitude was, I, I mean, I know this stuff. And so uh, when guys were uh, checking out after dinner early, instead of having a cocktail, they were going to their rooms and studying. And I just didn't feel the need to do that. So I took the exam. It was a bit more stressful than what I had anticipated. And when I got the results, my score was a 72 out of 100. And that's the equivalent in golf of a, uh, of a quadruple bogey, in my, in my opinion. Uh, reality set in, and that's when I knew that uh, uh, there's a little bit more to this than um, just knowing the, you know, the basics. If you're going to be a rules official, you have to understand this stuff. And these guys do. And if you're going to get to that level, I needed to change my uh, attitude about how I was going to uh, approach the rules of golf, and, and fortunately, I did. So, do you, <clears throat> excuse me. Would you agree that when you start off, and maybe you do for for us, it would be an RNA level one, you know, a one hour exam, sixty questions, I think, rel relatively straightforward. After that, you think I've achieved something. I know rules that I didn't know previously, and then the next level up is a level two, and that's you know two days, another exam. Even at that point, I think people think. I've probably, I probably know everything I need to know now. <clears throat> and at each level, we don't appreciate how much more there is <laughs> to learn. And, and maybe, maybe you're in that similar boat where you knew a fair bit, but you didn't know what was not known, so to speak, how much was still left to know. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, without a doubt. In fact, I admire the, the different levels that you have uh, with the RNA. Um, we have the option of taking an 80-question uh, exam uh, here, but in terms of, of um, in terms of uh, rating, you know, if you want to get your expert rating, you have to take the 100 question exam, and you have to get 90. Previously, it was 93. Before 2019, 93 was the requirement for expert, and with the rules came in 2019, I think that changed to 90. Okay. Um, so I don't know if it's because they're just being nicer, they wanted more experts or whatever, but. Uh, uh, that, that I'm a type A personality, so that was always my goal. I was not going to be happy with, uh, I certainly wasn't happy with 72, and I think my next score was probably like an 85. I wasn't happy with that. Mm -hmm. you know, my next score was like maybe an 88. I wasn't happy with that. And I wasn't going to be happy until I achieved that uh, expert status. So, Well, I, I did the exam the first time around 12 months ago. Studied two weeks. I got roughly the score that I wanted, and I got the certification that I wanted. Um, even studying for that, I think, made me realise, wow, I mean, I mean, there were X questions I still got wrong. Now, that X is less than 10, which is nice, but there were still questions I really didn't understand and I got the wrong answer. Even then, I think I still, wow. I mean, I know people that have got 99, 98. I didn't. <clears throat> but even then, there's still gaps. 
and I found that exam very, very stressful. Um, and I couldn't imagine doing that exam having not prepared. <laughs> I just would have found it even more stressful had I not prepared for that exam. I found it incredibly tough. In fact, you mentioned the RNA. If I can come back and mention the USGA, I think you are so fortunate to have that body that is so active in education, having so many staff dedicated to educating regular golfers, associations, you know, and the like. I mean, the number of seminars and workshops they run, the fact that they have the accreditation, I think, and we're going to talk about very shortly about the three-day seminar you attended, which had next to nothing to do with the rules of golf and was to do with refereeing. I think USGA do a fabulous job of educating people and, um, and, and I should add, making it available to basically anybody, including me living in Australia, you know, and being able to avail myself to that. Yeah, I think that's yeah, a you, great job. Yeah. yeah, you can, you don't have to be a, a rules person to sign up for one of these mm-hmm. seminars. Although, I mean, there are people that literally sign up because they want to learn more about the rules. And that, that's the reason why they limit, I think, questions to like two or three a day from, from people during the seminar, because those folks are asking them, they're asking eight an hour. <laughs> so, and, and we all know those people. We all know who those sort of people are. You know, yeah. this big book of over 500 pages, with both the RNA and the USGA logo on it. <clears throat> you know, there's there's rules and then there's the definition and committee procedures and other things. But there's not a lot in this book about being a referee and applying our knowledge for real on a golf course in real situations where the consequences are important because it involves a player trying to make money, earn a living, et cetera, et cetera, or even in the amateur game, you know, gain world ranking points, qualification for the next event, etc. You said you attended a three-day seminar about specifically being a referee. I would love to hear just five minutes about what you learnt uh, in that seminar, please. Well, it was by far uh, my favourite three-day seminar that I ever went to with the USGA uh, PGA. And it was last year and it was, I was a last minute, somebody told, I went to the, I went to the uh, regular rules seminar at Pinehurst and uh, uh, Dave Hampton mentioned to me. He said, "Hey, are you are you going to?" I, I didn't. I really hadn't paid much attention to it. So, I was able to uh, sign up and go at the last minute, and uh, it was it was incredible. It was it was not about the rules. Uh, I, 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 maybe one thing that was about the rules was we went over TIOs quite a bit, but okay. uh, but other than that, it was not about the rules. Uh, it was down at TPC Sawgrass, great venue. It included just about the entire USGA staff. This is the first time they'd ever right. done this. So they really were, were flying blind. They didn't know how this was going to go. But they had, they, had, uh, um, they had some people in this thing that were uh, uh, Stephen Cox, who was on the PGA Tour, Missy Jones and Brian Fahey from the LPGA Tour. Missy was the lady that, remember the confrontation at the uh, Solheim, Solheim Cup? Where the ball ball overhanging ball. the hole, I remember. Yeah. Oh, there was a lot going on there with confrontation with players and caddies, and she yeah. told us that whole story. Jordan Harris from the Corn Ferry Tour and, and Todd Satterfield from the PGA Tour Champions. These people just didn't give presentations. They engaged with us for the three days. I mean, really got engaged with us to teach us how to be better referee. So it was about how to handle uh, caddy interference, player conflict resolutions, uh, issuing penalties. It's not fun to issue a penalty, but you know, 
how to how to do it and, and then get out of there. Uh, I think I think uh, one of the key statements that I just really kept with me was I think it was Stephen Cox said, you know, you got to understand. Okay, the player doesn't care how well you know the rules. He doesn't care. And so, as a rules official, don't go in there quoting this and quoting that and naming rules. He doesn't care. He just wants help with his situation. Okay, that's what. He, that's all he wants. And I that uh, just resonated with me, and and uh, I thought it was such good advice. Um, our final test uh, for the seminar was a. Uh, you got called randomly. You didn't know you had, a, you, you had a tea time. You got called out there, and there were five situations. You didn't know what they were. And so these people that I mentioned before, along with USJ staff, they were role players. And and so you had five different situations, and you had to deal with it. So you were judged on whether you gave the right ruling. You were judged on your demeanor, your approach, whether you asked uh, uh, the appropriate questions to try to find out the facts. Uh, and, and then you got a grade. You know, they, they assessed you on all five situations, and then you got a grade. It, it, it was just, it was fun. It was extremely informative, and it was hugely beneficial in terms of, of how I changed my approach to, uh, to being a rules official. Wow. Can I just ask about one word, and that word is sorry. Did anyone talk about sorry? Do you ever say sorry to a player? Do you definitely not say sorry to a player if... You know, you can't help them, or you need to apply a penalty. Anyone talk about that? No, I, that that question never came up. But what did come up is it, it, it is, uh, and, and I I think it was Missy Jones that said this. She says, "Look, you're not trying to be the player's friend." Um, and so, saying you're sorry kind of leads down that path, and maybe you're trying to be their friend. The facts are the facts, and the rules are the rules, and you know. Your job is to try to keep players out of difficult situations, but sometimes that can't always happen. It's the, the incidents already happened. You've got to find out what happened and and then give the ruling. So, and 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 then the advice is that once you give the ruling, get out of there. Right. Right. And, and another interesting thing that I that I, after I thought about for a while, I thought was really good. Even though you're not required to uh, provide a second opinion, if if a player asks for one, and, I, and especially on the tour, I mean, they grant it, uh, but they're yes. not required to. Yes. But the, the advice was when you when you call in a, a, a second official for a second opinion, call them in, give them the information, and then leave. Yeah. Get, get, let, let, that, let that rules official uh, take over. Don't, yes. don't stick around. And at first I thought, well, geez, that's kind of, Kind of strange. Why wouldn't you both be both there? And 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 they said, now the best thing is to get out of there. That that guy coming to, to back you up is just as knowledgeable as you are. You've given him the facts. Get out of there. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, he's going to give the same ruling as you did, except except in the Masters with Ernie Els. But <laughs> but uh, but I thought that was pretty good advice. Give your advice. Get out. And the same thing with the ruling. Give the ruling. Get it. Then get out. Of I look, I don't have anywhere near as much experience as you, but like I remember some of the things I was told early on was number one, um, don't comment on the situation that player finds themselves in. Don't talk about, well, you know, wow, that's not a good predicament or I found myself in that position on Friday. You know, the players obviously have zero interest in hearing about your own golf game and your situation. And the second thing was don't mention rule numbers 
don't talk about Rule 9.4b unless they, which they are unlikely to do, unless they specifically ask you. you so you mentioned then about Cox saying they don't care how well you know the rules. And I think almost accompanying that is don't rattle off, well, 9.4b, exception 2 is this, or exception 2 to 9.3 is this. And they don't want to know anything about that, do they? Uh, no, they're going to look at you like you got square eyes when you do that. They, they, they just, they, they don't want to hear it. Uh, I, I actually had an event one time where another official, we were both on the scene, and the other official said, actually made the statement, said, geez, they should have marked that ground under repair. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't. I don't think that was the right comment he should have made. <laughs> right. I. I still remember my second ever professional event, which I did with Blakey, and I remember there was a wait on a drivable par four, and the group had just left, and there was already a group waiting. And I thought, I'm new to all this. You know, we shouldn't talk to the players too much unless they talk to us. I thought I want to learn. I was so new. I wanted to learn. I went up to the group and I said. Do you have any tips for being a good referee? I mean, they were just chatting about anything. They were talking about TV last night. They weren't too focused on their game at that point in time. I asked, do you have any tips for me, new referee? And one of the players said, and I still know who it was, he said, don't mess around. Just get in, tell us what we need to know, and go. He said, don't, don't take any longer than you need to. And I thought that was good. He said, just tell me, what I, do I get relief or not? If so, how do I go about it and go? <laughs> I thought that was good advice. Now, that may not be shared by other players, but I thought that was interesting insight from a player. He doesn't want to be standing there for eight minutes talking to a referee. Um, yeah, just as you said, get out, get out of there. Mm. That's exactly the advice that we got uh, at, at that seminar, was get in, give the ruling, get the facts, give the ruling, and leave. <clears throat> I guess another perspective you mentioned about, I mentioned the word sorry, you mentioned about being their friend, sorry, not being their friend. In a way, there are situations where you're trying to be a friend to the rest of the field, to all the other players, because you're obviously there to protect the field. And um, but uh, so you're almost being their friend without being the player's uh, friend. Look, I think just having a think about what you could talk about in three days with that amount of experience in the room. You talked about all the USGA staff there, all the heavy hitters being there. I think that would just be a wonderful, wonderful event. And I'm no surprise that you say it's the best one you went to and all the things you would have learned. And I would love to attend one. I think that would just be fantastic. Well, I think it, I think it's next week that back down at TPC at Sawgrass again. And I think this year it sold out, I mean, fast. The word got around about yeah. how good it was and it <clears> sold out fast. I have a, a question for you about being a referee. And you are a very, very, very good player who's played at very high level amateur, do you think your playing ability affects your affects you being a referee? Do you think being a very, very good golfer, maybe even an ex-professional, you might see situations differently to somebody who plays off, you know, 30, who's lucky to break 100? Do you think there's a difference in those two people and the way they referee? Do you think it helps you, hinders you when you see situations? Um. No, I, and I, I, I still, to this day, like last uh, uh, week ago Sunday, uh, I did a, a, a Piggy Kirk Bell Junior Girls event uh, out at one of our local course. And it was age, I think it was ages uh, 12 to 
18 in different divisions. And you see some higher caliber players and some less caliber players. You know, whether you're doing a, um, a USAM event or whether you're doing a um, North and South event or whether you're doing one of these junior events, the rules are the rules. I would say that with the younger players, there's a, a bit more instructional uh, effort to try to more of an explanation so that they so that so it's not just the result that they learn the a why a little bit yes you can't obviously you can't go on forever you don't want to give a rules clinic but but i i think that it's just a little bit more uh, effort in terms of explaining the why with the younger or the inexperienced player yes having said that i, I at a usam qualifier i saw a player um, uh, he hit a ball into a penalty area i was up on the hill and and then I saw him drop back out into the fairway, and I knew there was a problem. And as soon as he, and I got on my way, and as soon as he hit it, the the, the horn blew for suspension of play. So I went and picked him up, and 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 I said, "What? Well, come back here and and explain this drop to me, so I understand this." And he, he just said, "I was taking line of line of play relief. My ball entered the penalty area this way, and and I was and I had to inform him that." There was no line of play relief. It's back on the line, and, and he really didn't have that option. And I said, you need to make sure you add two penalty strokes to your score for playing from a wrong place. But the thought that left me was that how many times has this kid, yes. he was probably 21 years old, he's been, he was a great golfer, and he's been playing tournaments since he was probably 12 years old, AJGA and college golf and whatnot. And, and how many times has he taken that relief and thought he was doing the right thing? And, and, and just as important, his fellow players yeah, exactly. allowed him to take it, not thinking that he was doing anything wrong. So, so, so. <laughs> you know, you know, Blake, you know, I talk a lot about what happens and we have our club land stories, what happens at club land. And when you have, you know, four guys or four girls always playing with each other, what they must get away with. It just would boggle the mind. And that would be an example. I don't think he was probably deliberately trying to. That was probably genuinely his belief about what he could do uh, with taking relief from the penalty area. But what must go on at golf courses all around the world where the player thinks they're doing the right thing, the others in the group are comfortable with that, don't think there's anything wrong. You know, the lack of knowledge, I guess, of even basic procedures like dropping. Um, no, that's... When you were saying that, I was thinking, yeah, what about the other guys in the group watching this, thinking that's okay, but you said it as well, that they're okay with that drop. Um, or they don't want to question him on it, maybe. I don't know, but okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you mentioned also in our exchange of notes about David Stabler, a person who is very, very well known around the world in the rules of golf with extraordinary amounts of experience. And you, he said something to you or said something you heard from him about in the importance of understanding the concept and the relationship of the rules rather than trying to memorize and, and mem remember lists. Um, and I know uh, good friend Jeff Ward and Blakey, we talk about this a lot about, because I started off memorizing lists. I can tell you, you know, the two exceptions are 9.3, five to 9.4, uh, replacing a ball on a spot, there's four times you don't have to use the original. I remember that, that's how I remembered them. Now I'm learning others, including yourself are saying, that's good, but there's a better way to understand uh, the rules, the, the, the concepts and the relationships. Would you mind just explaining that, why that's so important, please? 
Yeah, and, and David, by the way, was one of the USGA guys down at that seminar at Sawgrass and one of the role players, and he, I happened to draw him, and, and, <laughs> and uh, he, could get a, uh, he could get an acting award. Uh, uh, so um, we all know how well-versed he is in the rules, but I, I think he has a demeanor when he, when he teaches rules, and I've had him as an instructor as well in one of these classes. He just makes you feel comfortable with it. He has a, a sense of logic that he approaches to it that that um, isn't so much uh, black and white. He, he just he, he molds in the logic. And he said um, he said uh, don't study one more rule until you read the uh, the principles behind the rules of golf, which was Richard written by Richard Tufts 50, 60, 70 years ago. I don't know how long ago. Uh, and I, I'm going to make a couple of quotes here that, mm. that back up you know, what I'm saying. Tufts quoting here, running through the rules are underlying principles that, like steel rods which lie beneath the surface of reinforced concrete, serve to bind together the brittle material and give it strength. And then he also said, the basic principles, fortunately, are simple, logical, practical, and expressive. Whereas these principles are seldom specifically referred to in the rules, they are well recognized by, by all who work with the rules and can serve excellently as a guide. Hmm. So once, and, and I did read that book I, after he suggested I read it, and I was spending too much time trying to memorize versus trying to conceptualize. And the first time I heard the presentation of status of the ball was by David. And if you go on the USGA website now, I think you pay $25 and they do an excellent job of going through the 25 rules. But there's one on there that's the status yes. of the ball. And that one is the best one on there because it just, it really ties in specifically two rules, but it relates to, to many, many others. It, it ties in 6.3 and 14.4 where when players' ball is back in play, when the original ball is out of play, and then a ball used in a play of a hole. And the way they go back and forth and talking about the status of the ball just relates in so many different ways. Once I felt comfortable uh, with relying on the principles, things just became easier to me. You know, I realized that I don't have to memorize everything. There's, our exam is, is 50 parts closed, 50 questions closed part and 50 questions open book. And the closed part are the ones that you should know, right? I mean, those are the, you don't want to spend time. But there's a reason that they give you uh, a, a, an open book because that book you carry with you out on the golf course, and if and don't be afraid to use it. You know, uh, I, in most cases I don't think I have to, but it's there if I need it. And and besides, as you know, many times there's idle moments out there on the golf course. <laughs> yeah. you're official, so having that book there gives you something to do, right? So, yeah. uh, so I, I thought that was really. Uh, uh, great advice from David, and uh, and I still have that book, and uh, <clears throat> it's a great book. Not very yeah. long. Funny you should talk about that presentation. In my preparation last year to do the USGA 100-question exam, I went through the virtual rules school, and I watched all those videos you just spoke about, including one separate from Rule 13, was the status of the ball. And I remember Jeff telling me before, oh, you've got to watch that presentation. It only goes for 38 or 40 minutes or something like that. Who would think you could talk about that topic for 40 minutes? Right. And they do, and it all makes sense. And I too found that presentation excellent about thinking about how a single ball like this can change status from different actions, from different things happening as you play the whole. 
I too found that presentation. I found that, in, in fact, I found that entire virtual rule school watching all those videos. I thought it was excellent. I mean, they literally just read through the rule book, but I like the way they read through the rule book and explain different things. But that status of the board does stand out for me as well. I actually did quite enjoy that. Um, we might just start to wind up here a little bit, Tim, and, and just with a few maybe rapid fire questions, just sort of quick, um, you know, clearly extensive experience. You've received the expert certification uh, on more than one occasion from the USGA by sitting the 100 question exam. Is there still one rule that sticks out that maybe is a weak point or just still confuses you every now and again? Is there anything fit into that category? I think um, Rule 1.3C4 uh, presents many people some challenges. Is this and, intervening uh, events, I guess? What, what's that? Is that intervening events, I guess? It, it's just it's it's uh, multiple multiple penalties, and and it's it, based on whenever an issue like that is presented on Golf Rule Samaritan, it gets a lot of response and a lot of different. Uh, so I know it's frustrating to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it it, it it's clear that completion of a stroke is an intervening event and they state that being aware or becoming aware of a breach of a rule including when a player knows they breached a rule when the player is told of a breach and when the player is uncertain whether or not they have a breach uh, that brings in a lot of subjectivity to me right and so and in a situation where an official has to consider multiple penalties in my opinion things have to be crystal clear I mean, you, you've got to make a decision here, and it's not a fun situation, and <laughs> things have to be crystal clear. Uh, for example, when a player is told of a breach, that's clear to me that when he's told of a breach, that's an intervening event. Um, yet I understand that the current guidance is that uh, it may require an interview with the player to determine if he believes what he was told was true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well... Okay, well, that would be a simple fix to be. Then say, if he's told of a ruling that is accurate, then that's an intervening event. But, but, to, yeah. inter but to, to introduce the fact that there still may be doubt even though he's been told, and I, I don't know, that, that to me adds to the confusion. I think they've got some more work to do on that uh, to, to, to tighten it up. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I agree that there's two intervening events. Completion of a stroke is very straightforward. But this... Being aware, becoming aware, even if you are uncertain. And I remember maybe Stabler said this, that now more and more in the rules and officiating that establishing the facts, or sorry, establishing the intent of the player and what the player's thinking is becoming one of the facts that we need to consider, um, perhaps more than ever before. Um, I'll rephrase that. Understanding the intent of the player and the thought process of the player is now becoming one of the facts that right. we need to consider when, you know, giving a ruling. I'm with you that you're right about the discussion on that group about intervening events and even the uncertainty. You know, you tell me, Stuart, you cannot do that. And I go, eh, I don't agree with you, but clearly now I'm uncertain. Yeah. That should yeah. be an intervening event. You know, just yeah. uh, even if I yeah. said, no, no, you're wrong. I don't agree with you. Surely I'm 1% uncertain. I'm not 100% certain. Um, okay, next one. Is there any rule you would like to introduce or change an existing rule? 
Well, m many would answer free relief from divots, and I'm, I'm not going to be one of those because I'm a <laughs> traditionalist. I say play the ball where you find it, and, and you get good breaks and you get bad breaks, and it's right. an outdoor game are going to be my three responses. So <laughs> yes. uh, pace, of, pace of play is a, is a real issue for me. Uh, and the current structure for local rules, for pace of play policies, they're specific, but they're rarely enforced. Hmm. And um, I think Rule 5.6 could use some teeth. So, for instance, unreasonable uh, delay of play is different depending on who you ask. <laughs> uh, some pre-shot routines, in my opinion, are delaying, uh, is unreasonable. Uh, so if you go to uh, clarification 5.6A1, they consider going from the green, say if it's a short par three, going from the green back to the tee to retrieve a club that you left there as unreasonable delay subject to penalty. I can assure you there are pre-shot routines that take longer than that. So I, I, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I, I think there has to be a real, I, I don't think there ever should be a, a warning. I mean, I think if a, if, a, if a group is out of position, I think you don't have to give them a warning. I think if they're out of position, rules officials should say, hey, you're subject to be in time 40 seconds uh, yeah. Anytime, yeah. we don't have to give you a warning. Forty seconds is the standard. Anytime throughout the round, not just when you're out of position. And and if they get a forty-second violation, then they get the warning, and the next one, the, the penalty process. Until you put starting and put some teeth into teeth. Yeah. into pace of play, I just I just think it's uh, an exercise that takes up a lot of time of rules officials for with no result. It's, yeah, that's a great point. I think it's interesting that rule 5.6 almost says pace of play should be considered, unreasonable delay of play should be considered, but committees, it's your problem. You decide on your own pace of play policy. You decide on how you are going to implement it rather than the rules stipulating specific penalties. You know, if you do not hit a shot within 40 seconds, once it's your turn, bang. There's nothing like that, is it? It's up to the committee almost. It's like the ruling bodies have said, you work it out, we're just saying it's a thing <laughs> and you should consider it. Right. But, uh, um, maybe this is probably going to have the same response. Any rules that you don't like or frustrate you? Well, I, I just gave you two that, that frustrate me a little bit, but I, I think rather than a specific rule, what, what frustrates me, first of all, you know that there are times when you read through this book, as many times as you've read through this book, that all of a sudden you read something that you that you, you, you don't, you say, wow, the light goes off. You, you've read it a hundred times, but all of a sudden it hits you like a brick that said, I didn't realize that. But <laughs> even though you've read it, and, and so you've always, you're always learning in this journey. You're always learning. And uh, one of the things that frustrates me is, is that this issue of guidance. Uh, you know, one of the things that the rules bodies did, the USGA and RNA, back in 2019 when 10.2b4 when, uh, was introduced about the restrictions about standing behind, they very quickly, very quickly, about even by the time the books got printed, they made a clarification. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and because it used to be that if once the player took a stance and the caddy was back there, it could not be reversed. And then they wow. quickly changed that to that if the if the player the caddy steps away and the player gets out of a stance and then comes back in okay so I, so i know it can be done um so an example i'll give you is, is playing a wrong ball so 
a stroke made at a wrong ball and any more strokes before the mistake is corrected, including strokes made and any additional penalty strokes solely from playing that ball do not count. Yeah. So 6.31 uh, says meaning of penalty strokes solely from playing that ball lists examples of penalties that are not disregarded because they also apply to the ball in play. Yeah. And one of those is playing a wrong ball. Yes. It's in there today. Okay? Yeah. But the current guidance is that once the once the wrong ball is played, the world stops. Yeah, yeah. Anything involved with playing that ball, including playing another wrong ball, is not going to count. Well, that'd be such a simple one to change with the clarification. Yet, they, it, it, so not everybody's getting that guidance, right? Of all the rules yep. officials around the world, right. that depending on what level you're at, not everybody's getting that guidance. <clears throat> but everybody would have that guidance if they simply made a very quick clarification <clears throat> and addressed it. Um, so I, I, I just, uh, I'm not a big fan of guidance. I like to see black and white, you know, <laughs> I like to see, you know, we have guidance in trying to determine reasonable judgments and I'm okay with that. We have, you know, we have guidance when, when trying to determine intent and I'm okay with that. But to me, that's, it's pretty clear. Either it is or it isn't. And if it isn't, say so. It's very, very interesting you say that. I had one of my own rulings dissected, which I brought up on this very podcast, dissected amongst many, many experienced people. And many said, well, the USGA have provided guidance on this. And I don't think I said this in that discussion, but what I felt was, you know, if I'm dealing with a player, I can go off the rules of golf, the tour hard card, and local rules for that event. I can't go off something that someone posted on a Facebook group, um, which is that guidance. And the other thing that um, I find interesting is that how often we, we fall under RNA jurisdiction in Australia um, and how often we hear about guidance from the USGA. Maybe it was a situation they hadn't considered before. They've thrown it around the lunchroom, come up with a response and provided guidance. And then we sit here and think, did they run that by the RNA first? Right. Like, did they go across the pond? Hey, guys, do you agree with this? Because... You know, I know Jeff has contacted Golf Australia as one example, saying, hey, we just read about this on the USGA site. Does the RNA agree with this? This is a game changer. And I think it was in relation to that wrong ball and how you're hitting a wrong ball and then hitting another wrong, like a second ball as another wrong ball and the change in guidance. And we're going, I wonder if the RNA have discussed this as well or agreed to that position. So I'm with you. I think the, the formal process is to through their quarterly updates, clarifications, rather than a Facebook post. I'm not being critical by any stretch. I think the USGA, USGA do an incredible job of being very, very active um, with all of this. But I, I, I share that frustration, I guess, is what I'm trying to eventually get to. That uh, It's interesting that so many things can happen to a little white ball. <laughs> like, yeah. So many things can happen on a golf course. That's phenomenal. And still things that have not been considered previously that we're still coming up with new scenarios. Well, there's um, more to come. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there is. No, I'm probably certain of that. Um, just we, you talked about the Golf Rules Samaritan Facebook group. The USGA have their own Facebook group. Do you have any comments you'd like to make? Uh, that's where, obviously, Blakey got a hold of you through that group to have this very interview that we're having now. Do you have any thoughts about those sorts of environments, those mediums, those groups, and what they do for the rules of golf and what they do for people like yourself? Yeah, um, I, I have a, they're both good groups. You get, you get different audiences in, in the respective groups. USJs will 
you know, anybody who's a member of the USGA that, who's interested in the rules or not is going to comment on there. And sometimes it's not very friendly. Um, <laughs> um, but the, the, the TGRS, I, um, if, if, if anybody heard the interview on golf rules questions with uh, Fraser and Nicole, and what an incredible story. And um, if you did listen to that, you, you, you know, not only him bringing TGRS, you know, into a, it, it, some people do Wordle, some people do crossword puzzles. <laughs> I do TGRS every day. I mean, I'm reading posts in there every day. Um, and then on his own personal story about how in such a short period of time, how he, he went through the process of becoming certified and, and where he's at today. I consider it my constant study guide because there are more people on there who are a lot smarter than me from around the world who are on there giving their opinions. And, uh, and there, is, there is conflict of opinions, but it's done so in a very professional and a, in a very cordial way. And if, if you think the rules are just crystal clear, just get on that page for about three days and you'll find out that the, some of the smartest people in the world uh, are in disagreement on things. And that's what makes it an, an infectious thing to study for me. Um, uh, there are people who, who I do not know, I've never met, that I've interacted on, on Facebook with, that I know that if I went to wherever they were at, if they're in Australia or if they're in Scotland or whatever, I could sit down, we give each other a big bear hug, and we'd yeah, have a beer, yeah. and I've never met them. Yeah, but that, yeah. that's how much interaction that you have with those folks. You know, and, and there's some incredible ladies uh, on that site. And there are some incredible ladies who are, who are involved in the rules. Uh, uh, Lori Vallee is one of them, and Cecilia Leslie is another one, and Liz Cantu, and Carolyn Sider, and 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 we remember Wendy Reinemann was so so very good. Uh, these 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 ladies are smart and they are sharp, and I learn from them. I, I learn from them, and uh, I appreciate their involvement in that site. And of course, without TGRS, I never would have been in, introduced to the world's <laughs> questions, which I think you guys need to take a bow. I think you do. Uh, I listen to you on my four-mile walks. You only have them once a week, so I've gone back now and listened to all previous episodes, or oh, we're yeah. in the process of listening to that. And you and Blakey have done a great job in creating the podcast, and you, and, and 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 you make it interesting, and you also make it fun, and that's why it's an easy listen to me. It makes my my walks go. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for saying that. That's very kind. Thank you. Just don't uh, listen to whilst operating heavy machinery. Walking is okay, but not heavy machinery. Thank you very much. That's very nice of you to say. Well, with that, uh, we might just draw it to a close. And as we do with all our Golf Rules Questions podcast, we finish with the episode's Golf Rules Question of the Week. And Tim, I've asked you as our guest today to deliver this week's, which you have written, this week's golf rules question of the week. Take it away, Tim, please. Okay, so this is golf rules question of the week number 110. Barney, the B-grade golfer, hits his approach shot onto a greenside bunker uh, on the short 15th hole of the very prestigious golf club at Wombat Hills. The ball is in the middle of a large collection of temporary water in the middle of the bunker. As the only air, relief area in the bunker would put the ball in a very difficult position on a slope, Barney decides to take back on the line relief outside the bunker. After making this decision, Barney walks into the bunker to retrieve his ball, and in doing so, he creates footprints. Barney retrieves a rake and smooths the footprints, and then correctly drops his ball 
outside the bunker. But instead of using back on the line relief, he's changed his mind and he's now taken stroke and distance relief from a distance fairly close to where the back on the line relief would have put him. Before playing his shot, Barney notices that the raked footprints that he had, that he had raked in the trap are in his line of play for that short shot over the bunker to the hole that is a mere six feet from the front of the green. After playing his shot, how many penalty strokes has Barney incurred? Very, very good. Thank you, Tim. So we've clearly got some issues with uh, Barney entering a bunker to retrieve a ball, making some mess in that bunker, and before making their next stroke with that bunker very much on their line of play, they alter the surface of the ground. They go in there with the rake and they tidy up that footprints in the bunker and they've taken unplayable ball relief. How many penalty strokes will Barney have to add to their whole score? Tim, that's a very, very good question. Thank you. And I look forward to people, as they do, often contribute with their responses what they think the answer is. Thank you for delivering that, Tim. Well, Tim, thank you very much. This has been a terrific chat. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing with us your experience. I can't wait to edit this up, uh, get it over to Blakey and he can post it and get it up for all those people on that Golf Rule Samaritan website to have a listen to. Um, thank you very much for your time. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you, Stuart. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Golf Rules Questions podcast, episode 110. My name is Stuart McPhee. It's been great to have your company, and we look forward to talking to you next on the next Golf Rules Questions podcast.